And then one day he sits down, he's like, Rachel, I think I'm going to join the Air Force. And I'm like, if that's what you want to do, go ahead. And then he did it. He actually did it. Hi, Internet. Welcome to episode two of Change My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington, award-winning author, humorist, and all-around white guy who has a computer with GarageBand on it. So I think that makes me legally obligated to start a podcast. Um, If you're new to the show, um, the premise of this show is very simple. I talk to people who have changed their minds about big, important things. Um, This week... I talked to Rachel Olivent, who is a, an online acquaintance. I had not spoken to her before the show, but it was a pleasure to uh, speak to her. Rachel formerly would have described herself as a complementarian and now identifies as an egalitarian. Um, now, she and I had kind of a long discussion about what those words actually mean. Um, if you're not intimately familiar with the endless drama that is American evangelical Christianity, you might not know those words particularly well at all. Um, but what it comes down to is the question of, do men and women have specific assigned roles assigned by God within the context of marriage, or are we all just basically equal? Um Now, that's admittedly a gross oversimplification, but that's basically all the overview you need to jump into the conversation. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Rachel Oliver. Welcome to episode two of Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington, and I'm here with Rachel Olivent. Say hi, Rachel. Hello. All right. Um, quick recap for anyone who missed the first episode. The, there is one reason for this show, and it's because I am in this phase of my life where I kind of hate everyone all at once. Um, <laughs> the world has become an ugly, ugly place, um, and every time I, I get on the internet, I just see people screeching at each other. Um, about really stupid stuff. And even the people that I agree with, I kind of wish they'd shut up most of the time. Um, There have been a lot of uh, studies, scientific studies, um, catching media attention in the last few years, um, saying that nobody ever changes their mind. Uh, Ideas are more tribal than factual. Um, If you present someone with uh, facts to the contrary of their view, they'll just dig their heels in even further. So... Yeah, that's um, it's kind of a, paints a bleak picture for the future of humanity. Um, but <laughs> I think we all know people can and do change their minds. It does happen, um, even if it's unlikely. Um, so this is a show about why people change their minds. I'm curious about it. So this is my research project and mostly just therapy for me. So without further ado, let's get into it. Um, Rachel Olivent. Am, yes. am I saying your last name wrong, right, Olivent? No, you actually, you have it perfect. All right. You want to, 
All right. We were talking a little bit like I know you a tiny bit from just interacting on social media, but I don't know, like we're not BFFs or anything. So I, I was just kind of getting the getting the Cliff's notes of your life before we started recording. Um, you're a grad student. Where are you grad student at? Um, I'm going online through Montana. Shoot, where am I going? Montana <laughs> State University Billings. Okay. But I live in Wyoming. You live, you live in Wyoming. I live in Wyoming. Yep. I've been here a week and a half. No kidding. That is where my yep. in-laws live. Oh, so. really? Where at? Laramie. Um, I'm in Cheyenne. You're in Cheyenne. Okay. That's, yeah, yep. um, that's yeah, that's where my grandparents-in-law live, I guess. So okay. <laughs> my, uh, my, my parents-in-law live in Laramie, my there and my father-in-law's parents live in Cheyenne. So mm-hmm. I've spent a good deal of time out there. It's a beautiful part awesome. of the country. It's, it's, it sure is. Um, for about two months of the year and the rest is just a snow covered wasteland. So. I think I'm in those two months right now too. <laughs> um, so we were going to talk about um, what Rachel told me was that she kind of, when she originally got married, she started out in what you might call uh a complementarian point of view and now identifies as more of an egalitarian. And those are, um, I feel like we should probably define those terms for, uh, Very for listeners. Loosely. Yeah. Very loosely. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I said this podcast isn't going to be all politics and religion, but my first episode was all politics and this is going to be all religion. Yeah. Kind of. I think, um, <laughs> but, um, complementarian, complementarianism versus egalitarianism is kind of a debate unique to evangelical Christianity, I feel like. Yeah. I think that's um, a good way to describe it. And I, I think loosely it comes down to the question of are men and women given different roles by God or are they allowed to take any roles they want is that fair it depends on who you read I mean (laughs) I started trying to because that was the thing when I went into this I was like okay I need to find my terms and I've read some really really smart complementarians is uh complementarians that I don't really have any issue with and then I read some egalitarians that are like I have lots of issues with so I think it's just I've kind of shifted on the spectrum I don't because the right. it's and only that they're all constructs. I mean, these are just terms people have tried to come up with to make sense of these things. So it's really right. hard, I think, to identify for me with either end because it just kind of depends on who you talk to over what the terms mean. Well, and I think part of the reason that I've kind of quit evangelicalism and signed signed up with like weird sectarian mm-hmm. Lutherans is I'm just sick of debates yeah. like this. <laughs> but um, um, yeah, I feel like I feel like on the complementarian and there's there's kind of like soft complementarianism yeah. which is basically just holds that only men should be pastors and that's the only distinction mm-hmm. it makes and then on the and then there's like super hard complementarianism which is like women shouldn't have jobs women should do yeah. all the cooking men should all you know um only the man is allowed to balance the checkbook or whatever so i think there's like a spectrum of the whole complementarianism versus egalitarian thing. And I, they're just kind of constructs that people kind of come up with to make sense of it all. And so I'm not even t- entirely sure where I fall on it now, because it depends on who you read is how they define it. So sure. some people say it's like, 
you know, women just stay home, take care of babies, men bring home bacon, women cook it. And other people just say it has something to do with spiritual headship and the relationship between Christ and the church. And it's like a parallel of the Trinity or something. (laughs) And so, I mean, I read some pretty intense stuff about it. And so I guess the better way to say it is my personal view on my role as a mother and wife has kind of just changed over the years. Okay. Well, let's just... I don't really know where that lands on the spectrum, though. (laughs) Let's just start at the beginning. Um... What when you when you first got married? That's where the story starts, right? Uh, well, um, even probably a little before that. Okay, well, around the time you were getting married, maybe a little bit before you were getting married. What would you say you believed back then? Okay, well, I had this goal that I just wanted, you know, to do it right. And doing it right meant, you know, you let your husband be the authority in the marriage. And I took that as a lot of like just saying yes, dear, all the time, because <laughs> I felt like if I didn't say that then I would somehow be undermining his leadership of the family. And that just proved not to be practical. And also I felt like if we didn't, um, and I didn't have any issue with staying home with the kids. I was a stay home mom. My baby's 14 now. So I've got four kids and my oldest is 14. And I had a part-time job when she was a baby, but I've just been doing the full-time mom thing until I started grad school um, when my youngest baby started kindergarten. I had no issue with staying home with the kids because I think it was the practical decision, but I think I got a little too philosophical over my practical decision. And, um, okay. What was the question again? Where am I going with this? (laughs) Well, I, I, what I, what I said, what I said was, what, how would you describe your beliefs back when, back when you got married? Okay, so I got married and I figure I just needed to stay home with the kids because that was the best thing for my family. And I had to let my husband make all the decisions because he was in charge. (laughs) And that really sums it up. And that was what I was going for. Um, And also, I think I bought into the elevated view of motherhood, like where mothers know their babies best. And you're the one who can make the best decisions for your baby and like that kind of stuff. Uh Uh-huh. And I think that was actually pretty unhealthy for me. Like, I think I really bought into something that um, wasn't a good idea from the way I was, the way I needed to raise my kids. I feel like there's a lot of, like, not just around motherhood, but there's a lot of romanticized ideals out there that you can buy into that just really don't take into account that people are different from other people. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> that's the thing. It's like everyone's like, oh, you know, I just love cuddling my babies all day. And I'm just like, when is it going to start barfing? When is it going to sleep? Like, I have other things I want to do. You're cute. You're great. But it's just, it was not like my dream of just like cuddling babies all day. And I had four of them. So I had plenty of time to cuddle them. And I am not sad my youngest is seven now. I think he's awesome. They're so much more fun when they learn to talk. So. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I feel I feel like any any job, you know, in, including motherhood, there's about there's as many different ways to do it well as there are people who do it. Yeah, exactly. You know? um, let's um, where let's talk about your original ideas, though. Where where would you say you okay. got those from? You know, I was thinking about that, and I'm not really sure. Um, I went to a pretty conservative, um, cause I was raised, my parents, you know, my mom let us go to church and I know she has some Christian background, but my parents didn't like go to church together or anything. So I kind of went with the neighbors 
That's interesting. And so, but my parents are very happily married. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. So my playbook is staying home with the kids. My mom was good at it. She kept the house clean. She never wanted to work. I would ask her, you know, when she was going to get a job and she's like, no, I don't want to, this is fine. So it always worked really (laughs) well for her to be a stay-at-home mom. Sure. And um, so that was what I saw growing up and I had no issue with that. And then I think my girlfriends, when we first, you know, were doing that college thing and talking about we wanted to do in our marriages, we decided we were going to be the good Christian wives who let our cousins be in charge because that was what we learned in our little Elizabeth Elliott Bible study books. <laughs> and, um, and don't get me wrong, Elizabeth Elliott's a rock star. But I read Passion and Purity with the rest of them. And, um, and so I think that's just what kept coming up for a while. And so I think that was like, okay, well, let's do this. You know, let's be, you know, good little wives and keep our houses clean and keep our husbands happy. And I wasn't very good at, well, I keep my husband happy, but I wasn't very good at keeping my husband. <laughs> so. Hey, I can relate to not being good at keeping your spouse happy, but uh, that's another <laughs> topic entirely. Um, where did you go to school? Did you go to a, like a Christian college? Or? Oh, no, I have done public, um, public, public education all the way through um, senior year high school. I went to community college. Uh, got my bachelor's at a state college, and now I'm doing my um, graduate work at a state college. Why don't we talk a little bit more about Elizabeth Elliot? Like, I'm vaguely familiar with Passion and Purity, but for listeners who aren't, um, you want to give them like the... I haven't read it in 20 years. <laughs> I just, like, really, it's like, I remember reading a bunch of books in that, goodness, do I not remember? It's just one that came to mind about all the stuff I was reading then. And honestly, I don't remember. It's been a long time. It was one of the things like I didn't come back to it. Like I think over the years I've done a lot more reading and I just, that was like a stack of books I never went back to. So that's why it's really hard (laughs) to identify what they were. I just remember that they were there. Okay. All right. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was going to say I've read like the back cover of Passion and Purity, but that's about all I know about it. I don't even Um, think I own it anymore. It's been years. I I don't think I made the cut. I also read I Kissed Dating Goodbye. That was a fun one too. Of course. (laughs) We all did. Of course. I mean, why wouldn't you? Um, I actually haven't read that one either. But, um, oh, you should just give it a go for fun. Yeah, you know, <laughs> ta- talking to talking to people um, in the sa- in the circle that you and I occasionally inhabit is is um, it's eye opening to me. It makes me realize how unevangelical I am. <laughs> like I've I've never never read a, you know all these big important books that supposedly every evangelical kid read in the nineties. I had but, um, put at my wedding. You had like the band? No, no, the song. We had a song oh. that, that was the evangelical land oh, I was okay. in. I mean, I was about to be really impressed oh, if Switchfoot no, no, played no. your way. <laughs> <I didn't laughs> <know that. laughs> so, um, yeah, let's let's get back to um, your your reasons for um, for being a, a, a complimentarian, mm-hmm. though. Um, are the we, this is one of those questions that's awkward to ask okay. i feel we have to ask it for the show i, I mean would, would, you, would you say the, the the reasoning is 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 more logical is it more emotional is it just like this is what my friends believe so this is what i believe so, um how would... i think for starters it was pretty logical because i think i had a very academic understanding of what i wanted the marriage to be like because it was all from books and stuff I didn't really hang out. Now that I think about it in hindsight, I didn't really hang out with a lot of older couples who practiced that when I was first married. Um, 
And then, but on the other hand, I think there was also an emotional aspect to it. Like I worked in a daycare for a few years and our daycare was fine. Like it was a good daycare, but it just made me like, oh, I just don't want to leave my kids in a place like this because I just felt like it was too much of a, uh, like, I mean, cause you know, when you get a bunch of kids in a room, it's chaotic and there's a high turnover in the work. And I was like, you know, this isn't really what I want for my kids. I think I want to stay home. But by doing that, well, I guess I think that, I think I'm getting ahead of myself when I start talking about it. So I think I did have an emotional reaction that I wanted to be there for my kids. And I think my philosophy, sorry, my um, reasoning behind it were kind of academic. So I think it might've gone both ways. Would you say, would you say there were, there were selfish reasons for believing this? Okay. So it's funny you should ask that one because I, um, about a couple of years ago, I had this epiphany. I read, um, I've read C.S. Lewis's The Weight of Glory over and over again over the years. And it starts out by saying, um, actually, I even pulled it out for this, about how the negative idea of unselfishness, because it's talking about how different virtues um, come into play and how some people focus on unselfishness, and that's not the same as love. So I think I was really, really trying hard to be unselfish. And um, because that's the whole point of motherhood, right? You're supposed to put yourself on the back burner and let your family, you know, that's why you're there is to like serve your family. That's the whole like, (laughs) that was one of those buy-ins I got into is that a mom was just there to pretty much, you know, just be there to do whatever the family needs. And about a few years ago, I kind of got a kick in the teeth when I was reading The Way to Glory again. And I realized, was I doing unselfishness or was I doing love? And he actually puts them as conflicting virtues because unselfishness means you're just considering what you go without. And love is when you're looking at the bigger picture for the family or you're looking at the bigger picture for everybody. And so I realized that because I realized I had this epiphany where I was thinking about I would let my grades suffer for my family. Like, I don't care if I get a bad grade because my family needed me. And I was like, wait a second, Rachel, is that really your calling in grad school? Is that really giving it what you're what? you're supposed to be giving it and would my family be totally fine if I give them Burger King and went and studied for a test yeah they would be fine if they ate Burger King while I studied it's okay <laughs> so I guess so anyway I guess like I said it wasn't a self it wasn't I wasn't being selfish but I'm not saying it was a good thing that I was being unselfish I mean, if your family is willing to eat Burger King for you, that really means they love you. They love so. Burger King. <laughs> Do they really? That's, that's the funny thing is I have these awful <laughs> conscience. It's like, I'm giving my kids fast, fast food. And they're like, yay, McDonald's. This is the best. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. <laughs> oh, man. My wife and kids both love. They all love fast food. And Mine do, too. I try so hard to cook healthy meals, and they just I don't. know. Um, yep. There's, there's no, <laughs> I know. no, thanks. There's no thanks. Anyway. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't know if, uh, if, if you know this, but I, I'm actually a stay at home parent as well. So. I think I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I stay home. I raise babies. I write books. That's what I do. So See? and let's work it out just fine. Isn't it? It, it works. Okay. It works. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk some more. Um, the, what, when did you um, first start to to question your uh, complementarianism? I mean, was it was it the umpteenth time you read The Weight of Glory, or what what, what triggered it? What well, I think to use another quote from The Weight of Glory, it's um, it was gradually as the tide lifts a grounded ship. 
So it just happened over the years. I mean, I've been married 16 years now. Mm -hmm. And um, there were just a few points where I was thinking about how philosophy has to meet practical application. Because I was actually raised very, very practical. Like my parents are the most grounded, practical people you've ever met. <laughs> so it's really easy for me to get a little too philosophical and think, wait about how's it's like that Dr. Phil thing. How's that working out for you? <laughs> well, I just began to realize that it wasn't working out that great. And so the one thing that I do remember, though, that really kind of woke me up a little is we were living in South Dakota. Um, my husband was already in the Air Force, so we had moved a few times. No, that was, sorry, that was our first move in the Air Force. We were in South Dakota at this church. Um, we were going to a little Baptist church, and we had a guest pastor. And the guest pastor said that it was a Mother's Day sermon, or maybe it was Father's Day. I don't remember. It was one of those special sermons we had a guest pastor. And he said um, there were three C's for wives and husbands. And one of the C's was um, a wife should correct her husband. And that just blew my mind because I had never heard from a pulpit that a wife could correct her husband. <laughs> and that just was like, granted, I ignore plenty of things from pulpits. But that was just like, wait a sec. So maybe I should, because that was my habit. It's like, I just would say yes, dear. Or if that's what uh-huh. you want to do, you know, and I did it like we'd been married like probably six or seven years at that point. And so finally, I remember we were driving home from church and I don't know, my husband's a good guy. He Maybe he was a little cranky that morning, but he started <laughs> griping about the fact that the kids use sidewalk chalk. And he's like, maybe we just, it just makes such a mess. And I think we should take it away. <laughs> and I was like, David, who cares? I mean, it washes off in the rain. They have fun with it. And that was really hard for me because I didn't want to like question him. And then he just, but the funny thing is though, he started laughing and he's like, yeah, you know, you're right. This isn't a big deal. And I was like, wait a sec. <laughs> And that sounds really stupid, but it really was kind of wake up calls. Like, it's okay for me to tell him if he's being too uptight about sidewalk job. (laughs) um, But I guess this was after how many years of marriage that you finally decided? I really want to admit it. We'd been right about six years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, because I had that, like, I was trying. And another, um, but my biggest, can I talk about my biggest yes, dear? Oh, okay, sure. Okay, so we've been married about, I think, actually, maybe, I'm sorry, I don't have the timeline for my marriage, right? That's so okay. we've been married a while, and my husband lost his job. And I was actually looking for a job, too, because we were going to be destitute. And um, at one point, he's like, you know, he was um, brainstorming all these ideas. And I was just like, you know, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. And then one day he sits down, he's like, Rachel, I think I'm going to join the Air Force. And I'm like, if that's what you want to do, go ahead. And then he did it. He actually did it. <laughs> and then the funny thing was, and I was just sitting there like, well, we don't have a better option. And I told him I was cool with it. So I guess we're in the Air Force now. But the hilarious <laughs> thing was like a year later, we, we got to South Dakota. We got to our first station. It was working out really well for him. Like this is like, he had a really hard time finding a career. And his friends tease him and say he was made in the Air Force lab. Like he is like the poster child airman now. And so the funny thing about it, if you're sitting on the couch and he's like, Rachel, I just want to thank you for being so supportive because you've just been all, you've been with me this whole time. And I was like, babe, I have to admit, I didn't think you were going to do it. (laughs) That that is wild. I know, but I was just like, you know, I just was in such a habit of saying, if that's what you want to do, go ahead. And then he joined the military. Well, yeah, I mean, and yeah. clearly it worked out pretty well, though. It did work out, yeah. So that's the thing is, like, that's I have no complaints about it. <laughs> I mean, obviously, the yes steer thing was working out very well for you, and yet you decided to abandon it. <laughs> maybe, maybe. 
But I think that conversation could have been healthier if we had more actual conversation about it. Oh, sure. And because yeah. I just spent like nine months bottling my feelings on that one. Like I was shoving them <laughs> deep down. And I guess it was just, and the thing is though, I did trust his judgment. That's the thing is I knew he wasn't going to do anything that was going to put us in a bad spot. And we were unemployed. Like we could not pay our rent and had to move in with my parents. So, and he's been in 10 years now. He's commissioned. He's been, it's worked out all right. He's going to retire. So who knows? Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to ask a little bit more about the yes, dear thing. Were you, were you like an absolute, like whatever he said, you say yes, dear, (laughs) you know, I mean, clearly the air force thing. I, I just like, like to me, I hear that to me, I hear that. And, uh, and I'm like, I don't know if I could stand my wife if she never pushed back on my bull crap, you know, like. That's the funny thing. I think I got a little passive. And this is kind of the reason why I wanted him to like, come on too. Uh-huh. Cause like, I'm trying to remember how I remembered it. Cause I think I just got a little passive aggressive about things, which is another <laughs> problem with it. And I also think we did, cause we never had fights. That was the funny thing. My friend was like, wow, you guys never fight. It's like, I think it's because we don't deal with anything. <laughs> so after I gave up the yesterday thing, we kind of started arguing more, but I think that made our marriage better. Oh, sure. Yeah. And he was not a fan of it either. He wasn't sorry. Because we actually did talk about that earlier, about who he's not sorry about how I actually have conversations with him now about things. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so um, we've talked about this. We've talked this about it a, a bit. Um, w- would you say your your reasons for um, for questioning your original views were were more more logical, more emotional? Is it a valid distinction? Is it both? Um, well, I think this is kind of like I said. It came on really gradually. Like we're talking about over the years, I'd gradually kind of think about something, and. Um, I think it was full. Like, I think there were points where I just realized that I didn't want to clean house forever and maybe it'd be fun to apply at grad school or something. Um, Maybe. And then I had that moment where I realized that just because I was trying to be unselfish all the time, that doesn't mean I was doing anything right. Um, And then, you know, I did a lot more reading over the years. My reading kind of expanded past that little stack of marriage books. And um, I met a lot of really great women who were, because I don't, one thing I want to disclaim, I don't want to um, say that I endorse a superwoman mentality where women can have a great career and keep a clean house and do it all kind of thing. I <laughs> you don't can have that. it all, baby. I don't believe that. But I did see women who did have, you know, a vocation and a calling outside the home. I saw dads who kept their house, they were stay-at-home dads. They kept their houses cleaner than I did. <laughs> like a neighbor who's a stay home dad and his daughter always had perfect little braids and they always had a spotless house. And I think, and he was like a big burly ex-Marine. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So I just, anyway, so I began to like meet more as I met people and it's like, you know, there's more than one way to do this. Like sure. God has unique callings for each family and you have to look at your practical applications. And if your practical is working, and everyone's, you know, doing what they're called to do, then that's okay. So I don't know if it was, a mo- I think it was just like a mixture. It was just like a little impressions that came on over the years. So here's the cynical question, which is, do you think that you started to question your, your previous view for more selfish reasons? 
see, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I just was trying to make things work. Like, I think it was kind of survival mode. And um, I just, I mean, I want my family to function. I want to be a good example. I want to, I mean, I want my marriage to be a good example to my um, sons and my daughters. I have two of each. And I want, and I guess that was another thing that came to mind is I want my sons to be good husbands someday. And I want my daughters to be happy wives. And I just thinking that teaching my boys to vacuum and do the dishes <laughs> and sending my girls to college might accomplish that better than encouraging them just to fit the stereotypes. Sure. Well, I guess maybe that's well, kind I, of like an emotional. Well, I do think probably having multiple kids, you kind of see that you know, certain people are certain ways, right? Yeah. Like everybody has kind of a certain nature, like there's the nature versus nurture question, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, if you have more than one kid, you realize, you know, kids raised in basically the same environment can grow yes. up completely differently. It's hilarious. Um, yes. You know, and it's, it's not like there's, you know, it's not like it makes a whole lot of sense to have one pattern for how for example, a marriage should work and just yeah. try, to, try to cram every personality into that shape. Exactly. That's really, <laughs> that's huge. I mean, because even looking at my own kids, I can totally see my um, older daughter going to college because they're smart kids. I want them to have that because I have my bachelor's. I want them to have that education. And then just, you know, doing some part-time job and taking care of babies. And I'm pretty sure if my other daughter tried that, she would go completely insane. <laughs> like, I mean, she she just needs to be active and detail oriented, or maybe she'd be a fantastic like PTA mama. I don't know, but it's yeah, you're absolutely right about that one. Yeah, I have uh, I have two daughters, and my oldest just talks constantly about princesses and how she wants to get married and have babies, and that's all she wants, you know. And my uh, younger one is just obsessed with like robots and dinosaurs and just yeah trucks and stuff <laughs> well, my um my younger daughter she's 12 right now and she said when she gets married she's gonna walk down the aisle to taylor swift's like what you made me do oh of That's course the she only thing i've ever heard her say about her wedding <laughs> you know i wasn't surprised when you said taylor swift but then then when you got to look what you made me do I yeah was, that's katie that is katie that's, that's an eye so, that's a raised eyebrow right there yeah. <laughs> i am on board though i'm absolutely yeah. on board she's already a little um, <laughs> <laughs> hanging out with christian writers as i tend to do um i do keep hearing people argue about this this uh question of egalitarianism versus versus complementarianism um and the more i think about it the more i think that um the more i think about it the more i think there's um almost a uniquely evangelical tendency to take things that are descriptive and try to cram them into prescriptive holes. You know what I'm saying? Um, maybe. Yeah. Um, like that one, one example I think is the, um, you know, that the idea in, in, in Genesis that man is made in the image of God. Right. Yeah. Um, I feel like, you know, there's a tendency to say, okay, well, people are, People reflect God, they're personal like God, they're creative like God. Mm -hmm. When I think I think most most scholars familiar with um uh ancient Near Eastern texts will will tell you that, well, you even if that's a valid application of the passage, the point of the passage isn't that 
you know, people are like God in X, in ways X, Y, and Z. The point of the passage is that people are in charge of creation in God's stead, um, okay. which is kind of, I mean, which is true regardless of which people you're talking about, right? Okay. Like, you know, we say, hey, people are creative like God, but well, there are certain individuals out there who aren't particularly creative, right? Um but there's no way there's kind of no way around the idea that people are in charge of creation, um, you know, whether we want to be or not, like we have, we have this power to destroy the, destroy the entire world if we want to, or to take care of it. Right. Um, (laughs) I'm meandering a lot. Um, And when you talk, when you talk about male headship, like, you know, it, Paul does in a, I think yeah. it's Ephesians. Yep. Is it? Yeah. It's definitely uh, there. Yeah. Um, he says the man is the head of, head of woman. It's, I think a lot of people read that passage and say, well, that means that men in a marriage have to behave in ways X, Y, and Z. Women yeah. have to behave in ways A, B, and C. Wives have to be submissive. Men have to be the leaders. Um, they, they read it as like this prescriptive thing of this is how you're supposed to act. Yeah. Um, but the reality is that like my, my head doesn't have to act a certain way to be the head of my body. Right. Like it's, Mm -hmm. I can do what I like, I can do anything with my head and it'll still be my head. Mm -hmm. Um, and the more I, the more I think about it, the more I, I think that my quote unquote headship of my household is less about how I behave, how I treat my wife, how I treat my kids and more about the actual position I'm in whether I want to be or not, you know, like whether I want to be or not, I am the largest and strongest individual in this household, which gives me a certain degree of power, mm-hmm. whether I want it or not, you know, um, like if God forbid my wife went crazy and tried to murder the children, I would be able to stop that. Yeah, right. Like in a way that she probably, <laughs> like in a way that she probably wouldn't if, um, you know, if I did the same thing, right. Or mm-hmm. like if, if someone, if someone broke into my home, you know, again, God forbid, and tried to harm my wife and kids, I would have a degree of ability to stop that, yeah. that my wife and kids don't. I hold a certain power over the household, whether I want to or not, you know, and it's not about, it's not about, I have to wield that power a certain way. Like, it's not about like, I have to lord it over my wife. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, sh- I should let my wife share um, the, you know, the command of the, well, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. yeah, that's, a, I haven't heard it put that way before, but I think, cause that's a tough one. Like I don't, cause I definitely don't think it's an XYZ list of ways to act because that relies really heavily on stereotypes. Sure. And I don't know. Cause that's a tough one. Um, and my, the way my husband kind of does it is he thinks, um, okay, let me, let me start that over. The way I kind of see it, it has to do with like a responsibility thing. Like this is one interpretation. I'm not married to any of the interpretations, but it's like, I see what you're saying. Cause it's like the guy, cause there's that one thing about like guard your wife as the weaker vessel. Right. She probably is. Don't beat her around because it's not cool because you're bigger than she is. Right. So it's just not cool to beat on someone smaller than you, you know? <laughs> I mean, pick on someone your own size, right? I think the way that is misinterpreted is that they it almost can put the husband in the role of a prophet 
because I think um, it can be given in this idea that the husband is the one with special access to God or something. And I know this is sounding a very extreme way of talking, but I feel <laughs> like I've seen this before. Like, I don't want to pick on anybody over the past 16 years I've been married, but I've seen in situations where wives have been like, well, I'm sure the Lord will guide him in this. And she doesn't talk. She just really hopes the Lord will guide him in it. Yeah. And it's like, but what if the God wants to use his wife to help guide him? And it's just counting on the husband's getting this like special revelation right. that I don't think is biblical. Like, I don't know where that's in there, where that's what that means, where the, the husband, the head it being the head of the household means that there it's almost like he's a priest. That's a strange idea. And it's not, I'm not sure I've ever encountered it, but I I believe that it's out there. (laughs) I don't don't think I've ever encountered it, but that's kind of the way it follows. Like they're trying, they're just counting on their husbands being the spiritual head of the household. Like they have some special, it it puts, it makes it, it puts too much responsibility on them. This is something I want to, I want to ask all my guests, which is, which is, do you have a coming out story? Quote unquote, you know, can you, um, was there a moment you announced to the world or whatever that you, no. you had changed your views? and Not really, because the thing is, we move around a lot. We have moved uh-huh. every, okay, we're on move number five in 10 years. Oh, wow. So it's kind of funny because every time I go to a new place, nobody knows me and <laughs> I kind of get a clean slate. So it was really funny because <laughs> in South Dakota, which was, well, back, I, I was originally from Washington State. And I was trying hard, you know, that was when I was in my yes year mode. And then I got to um, South Dakota and I kind of got out of my yes year mode. And then, you know, by Montana, which was, we just moved from Montana. I actually um, taught a Sunday school class in my, uh, we were at Baptist church and I taught a Sunday school class with men in it. And I was totally fine with that. And my husband was totally fine with that. But it was kind of funny because I remember, because, you know, that's something in the complementarian mentality. You don't really do that. And then I remember one day I went into class and I sat down and it was only dudes because it was a co-ed Sunday school class, but none of the other girls came. Uh And I was co-teaching with my husband, but he wasn't there that day. And I just kind of sat down and was like, all right, let's do this. So I, and nobody thought, and of course, everyone in that church thought, oh, that's just something Rachel would do. But that's not something Rachel back in Washington 10 years ago would have done. Mm-hmm. So I guess I don't really have that because I keep getting resets where I have completely different groups of people around me and they kind of just know a different, they know who I am at that time or where I stand. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's interesting how, how easy it is to, uh, to change when you move around a lot. It is. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting how grounded our, our beliefs and behavior tend to be in the communities we're in and how easy mm-hmm. it is to, to shut them when we move to a different community. I mean, like I went through a hippie phase too, where I like didn't even use shampoo for a couple of weeks because I didn't think it was anyway. It was a terrible idea, and the people I've been in I that knew, phase for thirty years. So <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> but the people I knew in Montana, when I talked about my hippie stuff, they were just like, "Really? Are you serious?" Because <laughs> they had that's just not that's just not the way I do things anymore. Let's keep going. How, how do how would you say things work in your marriage now? I think I got it pretty good. Um, I were, it was actually kind of funny because when we moved, we left our kids with my parents in Washington. Uh-huh. So it's just been him and me for like three weeks now. We're going to go get the kids this week. 
Oh, that's fun. So it's, it's been weird because it's like we've been talking to each other and stuff and hanging <laughs> out and like running errands. And he hasn't had much work to do because he just started because he just got to a new assignment. Um, they just don't have his stuff worked out so he can do his job yet. So mm -hmm. he's going to work for like a couple hours a day and coming home. So anyway, I feel like we have a really good sense of teamwork now. Like I think over the past five years or so, we've really started to develop, understand better what our strengths are and what our weaknesses are. And I think now I definitely don't yes to everything anymore, but the things I do say, yeah, you go ahead and do that is because I trust him to do it. Like um, my husband does balance the checkbook because he has a degree in finance and <laughs> I recognize that he, 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 he does math better than I do. I, I don't know. I need a calculator to play Yahtzee. And so um, <laughs> it does make sense that I, cause I recognize what he can do well and um, he recognizes what I do well. And so when we kind of concede to each other, it's because we trust each other that we know we can handle it, that we know the other person is better equipped to handle it. And when we do argue, I think we can um, communicate better and resolve it quicker. And I think another thing we notice is that if I do dig in my heels on something and refuse to be like, quote unquote, submissive about it, he knows it's because it's really important to me. And if he's digging his heels in on something, I can usually tell that it's a big deal. And I know why it's a big deal. So I think it's just, you know, the whole dropping the... Um, Dropping the yes to thing, I think it really helped us to understand each other better because when we did try to work things out, we could actually work it out. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, even, even if you subscribe to the idea that the, the man is the leader of the household or whatever, like good leadership means listening to people who know what they're talking about, you know, exactly. seeking good counsel, giving giving the, you know, important jobs to the people who are good at those jobs. Yeah. Um, so, you know, being willing to defer to smarter minds when you know you're out of your element or out of yeah. your depth or whatever. So. Well, and that's even um, come up too, because, and that's one thing about like personality. My husband, he naturally is a good leader. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's just something like he's a military officer I'm and sure. he's good at it. So he's actually taken a lot of training and stuff in leadership. So I feel like his natural leadership skills transfer really well to the family leadership skills, if that makes sense. So I guess I just kind of luck out with that. And, um, but I was going somewhere with that. Oh yeah, but you're just saying as deferring to people. And I think that's an important thing. And I've actually talked to some of my um, friends about this in their marriages when they're just like, well, I want to give my, my husband the authority. It's like, well, but if you are better equipped to handle something, then a leadership should let you do it. Right. You know, like you shouldn't have to say like, well, cause I've actually had, I've heard situations where people have said things like, well, my husband doesn't want to do it that way. And it's like, okay, that's okay. But the thing is like, <laughs> if you, um, but I think it gets really sticky when um, the husband isn't acknowledging that his wife might have, more insight or a different perspective that he that's kind of being overlooked sure and i think that's something that can get a little sticky in the um if there's not those conversations happening or if the wife right. doesn't feel like she, or if the wife doesn't feel like she can add that input you know 
Well, there's a there's a huge difference between real leadership and authoritarianism or mm-hmm. dictators, you know, dictating. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, would you say that your uh, your newfound egalitarianism, if you want to call it that, would you would you say you're evangelistic about it, or do you try to do you try to convert people to your point of view? Well, for starters, I'm not entirely sure. I'm entirely on the egalitarian bandwagon. Like I said, I'm on the spectrum, but I don't really know where I fall on the spectrum because it depends on where the definitions are. But sure. as for being like evangelical, I think my my um, I think I am more likely to encourage my other wives I talk to to um, like if we are talking about it. I don't. I'm not going to get up in somebody's business if they don't want to hear it. Like, I just, that's not what, that's not how I do things. And I decide, like my, just my personality and my way of interacting, it's not my business until somebody makes it my business. So if somebody is sharing with me, I will share my experience with them and I will try to encourage them to maybe think outside the box a little bit, but that's as far as it goes. I mean, I don't think there's, I mean, and also the other thing is the complementarian model works for, works for some people. Yeah. And it's all about, you know, I think this is something that couples have to work out on their own because that's the thing is what works for David and I isn't going to work for other people. Like I have, it's kind of funny because y'all have, we all have those friends. It's like, I don't know how they do it, but they do. And so, <laughs> I mean, cause that's the thing is sure. every marriage is unique. So I don't feel like I can push what worked for me on other people because it might not work for them doing the things the same way. Uh, yeah. But I do want to encourage people to think outside the box a little more. Sure. And understand that's okay. So, um, as, yeah, aside, aside from the uh, change in beliefs, what, what would you say would you, you uh, learn from the experience of changing your mind? Um, I think it comes back, and I think I already said something like about this, about how philosophy has to have, I think, okay, so when we're trying to do things in wisdom, we can have philosophies on things all day long. We can have sure. academic, like, understandings of how things should be, but we got to see what happens when the rubber meets the road. Uh-huh. And I think um, if I'm if I'm doing something in my life and it's not working, and then you got to shift gears, you know? I mean, I think mm-hmm. it's just part of, you know, having wisdom and admitting that, you know what, I thought this was the way I was supposed to do this, but maybe it's okay if I just, you know, realize that there's, you know, it could be different and that's not a problem. Yeah. When I was, um, when I was a teacher, I used to, I used to teach high school. Um, and I was, when I was a teacher, they, what they always stressed in workshops was precision and planning, flexibility and execution, Right. Like Mm -hmm. if you show up at the beginning of of class without a plan, you're screwed, you know, but if you rigidly try to stick to the plan, regardless of what happens with the human element of the classroom, you're, you're also screwed. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and I, I mean, it, you know, if you have a blueprint and something goes wrong when you're building the building, you have to adjust your blueprint. Right. Like there's, There's not a one size fits all plan. Yeah. Well, the other thing is when we got married, we were um, 21 and 22. So we were babies. Uh So I kind of, I felt what I realize now, 16 years later, we're 
almost grown up now. I think we're kind of grown up. Um, what I realized is I was putting way too much, I was expecting too much of David. Like he was a smart kid, but by like trying to have those like clearly defined roles, I feel like I was putting all the decisions on him and I wasn't really supporting him as he was trying to make them, hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like the whole Air Force thing. He kind of just did that on his own. I just kind of like nodded and smiled through the whole thing. And in hindsight, that was kind of that wasn't cool of me. I mean, we're like supposed to be like life partners and best friends. <laughs> and if my best friend said, "Hey, Rachel, I think I'm going to join the Air Force," it's like, "Oh, honey, wow, let's talk about it." <laughs> and I never gave that courtesy to my husband, you know? Yeah. So, um, so I think so. It was stuff like that that came up, and also, and I haven't touched on this yet, but I think it was also something that changed my mind on about the very the clearly defined how I thought what a mother needed to do and what a father needed to do. And so I was trying really, I ended up micromanaging the babies Mm -hmm. and I was kind of leaving David out of all that for the first couple. And then I figured out I was being an idiot. (laughs) And I finally, well, and the other funny thing is my husband's the oldest of seven kids Mm -hmm. and um, his youngest brother was born when he was 17 years old. So he's changed tons of diapers and stuff. He's already raised four kids by the time he met me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was he really was really involved with his little brothers so mm-hmm. it was just kind of funny that I didn't recognize that that um I had babysat and I worked in a daycare for a little while and so because I was so set in the stereotypes and it's like okay this is what I'm gonna do I'm gonna run my home I'm gonna take care of my babies and my husband's gonna go to work I really feel like I missed out on a valuable resource but I mean he did help don't get me wrong he was involved mm-hmm. but I didn't really include him in the decision making with the children I just kind of made it all and decided how I was going to do it. And I didn't really give him any room room to interact with that until I got to like baby number three. I had woken up by then. So, yeah, and, yeah. Um, and the entire neighborhood raised baby number four. <laughs> so it was, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gosh, I can't imagine like having, you know, knowing there's like another adult brain in the house and not even wanting to use it as like a sounding board to bounce ideas off of. Or whatever. And I think I did bounce ideas, but I don't think I listened. Uh huh. You know, I don't really think I valued much of his input, which I have since when I have come around from that, you know. All right. I have three questions that I want to ask every guest on the show, just kind of broad philosophical questions, just to see what kind of interesting answers we get. All right. So, first off, what do you think identity is? Do you believe in identity? identity? Does each people does each person have an identity? What does it mean? What's an identity? Oh gosh, I should have thought more about that. <laughs> I, um, well, I think I'm gonna take the um, I'm gonna get in the Christian lane, <laughs> and I think identity, identity is understanding who God created you to be. Okay, and it can be a million things before that, but I think in the ideal world. There's there's potential in all of us, and I hope identity would be reaching the potential God has for you. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's making me realize. And trying to be, because God has certain, you know, um, okay, let me try that again. God has certain, God has a purpose for everybody, and he has traits in people that let them be equipped for that purpose. And so identity is just allowing that um to come together maybe okay hard question (laughs) yeah yeah 
I need to try to have more non-Christians on the show because I'm going to get the same answer from every Christian I have on the show. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, we all got we got that one wrapped in. Give it to us in a Christmas party, you know. Sure. Sure. Yeah. All right. What about human nature? Is there such a thing as human nature? Are all people the same? Does everybody have a uh, poor nature? Is everybody a blank slate? What do you think? I don't think everyone's a blank slate. <laughs> um, I have four kids and they've never been blank. Because I guess if you think everyone's a blank slate, you'd have to like have a baby and the baby would just be like a lump of flour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but babies have personality from like the second day. I mean, the minute they're, they're hours old and you could already see they have different stuff coming out right I mean, well okay, i think coming out babies that's totally not what i meant but yeah, yeah, yeah. So when babies are just like they they have unique personalities from the get-go and so and then as soon as they talk they can lie um <laughs> i have witnessed that over and over again and i so yeah i think there is i mean there's something in us when we're little and i don't think that it comes from somewhere. I mean, if that's what you're asking. Yeah. Yeah. No, I saw a quote once that was like, um, it's very telling that none of the major enlightenment philosophers ever had children (laughs) (laughs) because they all thought human nature was a blank slate. Yeah. It's, it's it's just kind of funny. Like that, I think that was actually the thing that surprised me most about parenthood is how big the personalities are so young. All right. And finally, what is truth? Gosh, you really is there um, such a thing as truth? <laughs> so this is where my um, philosophy meets practical application comes in. Uh, All right. And I and you get into definitions, and I kind of think about like I coincide truth with reality. So I know some people have a lot of because you have to define truth, and I define truth as like what happens, like the reality, the truth of the situation. So I think there's truth because everything happens and there's got to be something, the facts of the matter, I guess. So I think there's truth because I think there's the facts of the matter. (laughs) And you can get into like the whole um, individual truths and everything. And I guess, and that's a thing, but when you get down to brass tacks, I think that there's a truth under all of it. All right. Anything else? You got anything to plug? Nope. Website, Twitter, no? Um, uh, I'm just working on lots of papers right now that nobody reads except about board professors. So. (laughs) I wanted to ask you more about what it means to to study public relations. I should have done that at the beginning of the show. Um, Do you want me to go into it now? You know, I'm actually curious. Like, if it's interesting, maybe I'll edit it into the beginning or just leave it at the end? All right. Well, I'm just curious. Okay. So for public relations, I was actually looking for a communications program and at the school I'm at the communicate, it's just called public relations. I'm doing an emphasis in media and society. So I'm kind of just studying how, um, how people interact with the media and how it's changing culture. And I've done a lot of work in, um, I've actually, I'm only halfway through my degree and I ended up doing a lot in um, like how to write public service announcements and stuff and how the public responds to different messages. And right now I'm doing an independent study that involves the content analysis of Facebook comments, 
where I read oh, lots of Facebook comments and I code them and I realize that the world is an awful place because it's well. about how people interact <laughs> in social media. <laughs> that sounds like the most depressing study in the world. It's not much. I gotta admit, it's like you know, you know, people are jerks on the internet, but when you actually look at the numbers of the percentage of how people interact, well, the main thing I'm doing. I mean, the point I'm doing is I'm looking at it's um I think on vaccinations and I'm looking at the sources people are using, but oh, the secondary man. part of the study is just looking at how people interact, and the numbers just aren't pretty. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah. So, but anyway, it's interesting though. So that's what I mean is kind of just looking about, it's how people reply. It's how people respond to information is kind of what I'm studying. Okay. Well, cool. <laughs> you're studying what drove me off of social media and into podcasting then. So oh, for, I cool. might be, I don't know. You, it, it takes a strong stomach. That's for sure. All right. That about wraps things up on Change My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington. You can find me on Twitter at Luke T. Harrington or on my, go to my website, which is LukeTHarrington.com. And I will see you all in a couple of weeks. Bye, Internet. There's a novel uh, that I keep seeing lately um, it won the, um, the 2017 Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction. Uh, Barack Obama, of all people, listed it as one of his favorite novels of 2017. Um, the title of the book is The Power, just The Power. Um, it's, a, it's written by Naomi Alderman. Um, and I guess I personally can't really recommend it as a novel. I thought the characters were kind of cardboardy. The plot was uh, painfully predictable. But um, as an idea, it's pretty interesting. And it, it, it seems to have uh, captured the cultural zeitgeist. Um, the, it's one of those books that if you know the premise, you don't really need to read it. Basically, what you expect to happen happens in it. Um, so, spoilers. Here's the premise. The premise is that um, one day, all the women in the world um, wake up with the ability to give people painful and even deadly electric shocks through their skin. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a science fiction novel, um, and again, basically what you expect to happen happens in it. Women start committing the murders, committing the rapes. Uh, women seize power over the mili military and then over the governments of the world, and basically men are reduced to being forced to use their sexuality to gain any advantage in the world. And, um, you know, like I said, I, I didn't think it was that interesting as a novel, but I think the reason it's caught so much of the world's attention right now is that the idea at its core is something that maybe a lot of people aren't comfortable saying out loud or, or, or acknowledging, which is that power is real. Um... And what I, what I mean by that is, is, is that, you know, power, power is an objective reality and it is ultimately dependent on the ability to physically enforce your will. Um, and I, you know, you know, when I say power, I mean something very different from authority or leadership, right? Authority and leadership are 
kind of subjective realities, right? Like authority is knowing what you're talking about or knowing what you're doing, um, which is, it's relatively true. It's always more, it's more true of some people than others. And uh, in some ways it kind of comes down to who's observing it, who's judging it. Leadership is the same thing. Leadership is the ability to get people to follow you, to know where you're going. Um, And again, those things are subjective, whereas power is ultimately an objective thing, right? Power in the real world boils down to the ability to force your will on people. Um, And it's neither good nor bad, it just is, right? Um, Recently, President Trump, on the 4th of July, he staged a military parade, um, which is not something we usually do in this country. Um, But I think it's very clear why Trump is engaging in this display of power. And I mean, this has been true of, of President Trump for his whole career, which is that he likes to put his power on display because he knows he has neither authority nor leadership skills. But anyway, that's um, that's neither here nor there. Um, what I did appreciate about the novel, The Power, is that, you know, it, it seems aware of this reality that, that power is is real and power is the ability to enforce your will um, physically. Um, and it's, you know, it's neither good nor bad, it just is. Um, and that's kind of what I was getting at with that weird little rant I went on uh, partway through the conversation, which is that, you know, as the adult male in my household, I hold the power whether I want to or not, right? Um, so when I, when I see stuff about male headship in the New Testament, like, that's where my brain goes. It's not like, oh, well, I better start ordering my wife around or my wife better start cooking and cleaning. Obviously she doesn't. I do all the cooking and cleaning. Um, My power is the reality that I can get my way whenever I want to. Um, And obviously if I'm striving to be an ethical or a moral person, I'm not going to use that except in a matter of life or death. And, you know, when I do use it, hopefully I use it in the service of others. Um, but the only point I was trying to make was that my quote-unquote headship, and if you don't use like that word, you can substitute whatever you want, but my quote-unquote headship is an objective reality in that I have the physical ability to enforce my will. Um, and again, <laughs> if tomorrow uh, we wake up and my wife has the ability to kill me with, with electricity through her hands... Um, suddenly she'll have the power in the household and that will change the way things work, whether I, whether I want it to or not, and whether she uses her power ethically or not. Um, and that's all I was really uh, trying to um, get into when I, when I went down that little rabbit trail. So hopefully that makes sense. Um, really interesting conversation with Rachel. One of the really interesting things to me about it was this idea of moving around physically, like making these geographical residential moves, uh, gave her the ability to change her, change her ideology so easily. And that's a really interesting concept to me of how ideology, how ideas are formed in community and then reinforced by the community. 
Um, we didn't get to get into that super deeply. Hopefully we will in future episodes. Um, I do kind of wonder if that explains a lot of the phenomena on Twitter. Like, Twitter is not just a global community. It's a lot of people kind of talking to their own little crowds, and then every once in a while, someone coming in and grabbing their most embarrassing tweets and plastering them all over the internet. And maybe that's part of why everybody hates everyone right now. Part of it is we're all just terrible people, too. But um, anyway... Good talk this week. I will see you all in two more weeks. Um, I got a guest we're really excited about. We'll talk about it then. I want to thank Raven Creek Social Club for hosting the podcast. Be sure to check out their other two podcasts, uh, The Commentarians, which is movie commentary, and Faith and Other Oddities, which is a really interesting Bible podcast. Um, Again, feel free to find me on Twitter at Luke T. Harrington. If you like the show and want to throw me a couple of thin dimes, go out and buy my book. (laughs) It's called Ophelia Live. It is available on Amazon or wherever fine to mediocre books are sold. I will see you all in two weeks. Bye.